Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Lauren Groff from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in early 2023 at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Groff is the author of six books of fiction, the last three of which, Fates and Furies, Florida, and Matrix, were all national bestsellers and all finalists for the National Book Award. One of the many delights in reading Groff's books is the dramatic shift in time, place, and focus from title to title. She is not an artist writing the same book over and over. From a multi-century saga of a town and its secrets, to a boy at a hippie commune in upstate New York, to a look at modern Greek tragedy, to the wild country that is the state of Florida, and life in a medieval nunnery during the 12th century, every time you pick up one of her books, you are transported. It's thrilling as a reader, and it speaks to Groff's immense talent that there are thematic through lines moving across such a diverse body of work. In her talk, Groff reveals the deeper undercurrents of her work and her unusual process of writing. While she professes to be profoundly secular, the core of her talk revolves around God, poetry, love, and sexuality. She weaves a discussion of the biblical Song of Solomon with her own biography and her spiritual journey and the universal themes found in the work of John Manley Hopkins. And she manages to do all this with an incredible sense of humor and somehow a light touch, which feels, like her fiction, somehow slightly magical. Here's Groff. Hello. Hi, thank you for being here. As you can see, the title of my talk tonight uh, could very well have been Everything Anywhere All at Once, but that was taken. Um, this is On God, or Faith, or Mystery, or the Eternal, or the Divine, or even Literature. And this is, of course, an 1108 illumination of the extraordinary Hildegard von Binken, who is a polymathic nun super genius, and a musician and healer, as well as being a great abbess, and the channel through whom God spoke in a series of mystical visions. She was a great influence on my Marie de France for my last book, Matrix, and here she is getting the flames of visions from the heavens and writing them down into her little book. Uh, you'll see presently why I chose her as a mascot for my talk tonight. I want to give lectures only on things that terrify me. So tonight, I thought I'd talk to you about something I've been wrestling with in my work for a long time, something that I haven't seen the end of and I likely never will. By this, I mean I'm going to talk with you tonight about God, or religion, or spirituality, or faith, or eternity, or the prime mover that formed the spheres and quickened all life into being. Whatever word or term suits you best, if it indeed suits you to attempt to contain the infinite in words, those bluntest of human instruments. 
I will be talking about God slash faith slash eternity by talking about the way literature attempts to shape and drive and describe the gorgeous range of approaches to the vast mystery at the center of existence. My excerpts all showed themselves to me as poetry, primarily because a poem can be regarded in full the first time we have to look at them, in the time we have to look at them together. So I'm going to feed you a lot of good poems tonight. I believe that art in general, music, sculpture, painting, architecture, needlepoint, graffiti, TikTok dances, any art, is an urgent eruption out of that deep and central universal human hunger to touch or encompass, brush up against infinity. It's a way of translating the untranslatable, of attempting to make concrete what can only be abstract, of connecting to what is an eternal within the animal self. And the subset of art that is literature is unique because it is the best way individuals have found to pour a singular consciousness directly into fellow humans' minds and souls to try for the very connection that fervent believers long for in their God. Part of my struggle with God or the infinite mysteries comes from the fact that I am profoundly secular now. If I had to call myself anything, it would be an anti-dogmatic humanist. When I was very young, though, I was ravenous for a narrative so vast it could encompass the great astonishing nature of being alive and could act as a seawall to diminish the power of the waves of confusion that smashed and broke upon my head on a daily basis. Because I was a child then, I was devout in a childish way. Everywhere I looked, I saw the handprint of God pressed into all things. And I felt my prayers flying straight up into the sky. I sensed that they were caught and brought to the godly ear and listened to and heard and answered in the way that adults so often read my mind and answered me with both silence and action. When I fell asleep, it was to the soothing vision of all the world's children held easily in the palm of a universe-spanning hand. My parents were not especially pious people, though every Sunday when I was young, they forced us into fancy shoes and took us to the 18th century Presbyterian church in my hometown of Cooperstown, New York. These days, I often dream of this church, austere and white upon its hill on Pioneer Street, its steeple pointed like a bony finger toward the heavens. On Sunday mornings, passing through the front doors was like being taken into the mouth of a whale. The vestibule with its baleen of coat racks, and then the swallowing into the great open space like the whale's interior. Vaulted ceilings 40 feet tall with angled ribs and fat white columns, the vast organ up front like lungs, breathing behind the ever-beating pulpit heart. Through the stained glass there came a flood of underwater light. When the choir rose to sing, the director made them sing atonal contemporary arrangements, which, frankly, Nobody in the town had the chops to sing. And it was quite something to watch the choir rise as one to its certain failure with a sense of patient resignation. I don't think they're here. I love them anyway. This was fine. To Presbyterians, patient resignation is godly. Godly, too, perhaps, is the pain inflicted on the listening congregation. But also found in that church was simply undeniable beauty. 
soul-shaking beauty even, the Christmas mask candlelight buttering all the singing chins and making the cheeks and hands radiant. Those moments of silent collective prayer calming the kicking rabbit of the mind. Even during the times the preacher droned on and I couldn't follow the words, there was the Bible, a physical object of such pure and strange beauty that I passed many, many hours in the contemplation of it. The silky feel of the onion skin pages, barely there, a mere breath of paper con to contain the holy word, a gorgeous gilding on the deckled edges, the smells of old prayers and ink and leather and the sweetness of the binding glue. And all those names inside so solemn, themselves blowing out of the hot desert like wind, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, Issachar. All those desert fathers proliferating and dying after long centuries of rabbit-like begetting. <laughs> Even better were the incredible stories of murder and betrayal and anguish that were in the Bible. Not to mention the part of the Bible that I read and reread until I nearly memorized it, a poem that sang confusedly into my dreams, the astonishing sexy beauty of the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon one of the great love poems of all times. And I'm gonna give you a little excerpt, because why not? This is one of my favorite parts from inside the poem. Um, it's not far into it, but it's so beautiful. My beloved spake and said unto me, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear upon the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Just an aside, because I believe in shouting out translators who remake the book they are translating in their own image, this is the incomparable King James Version, the most musical because the most Elizabethan of all uh, Bible translations. How sensual the word selections are here. My dove that art in the clefts. He who feedeth among the lilies. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, shout out that old Solomon for his sexiness. <clears throat> The glories of church going as a child also meant the release at the end of the service, the coffee and community hour, a run down the linoleum ramp toward the meeting house where the old ladies had set out cookies and tea with their blue veined chinoiserie hands. And snatched in passing were the chocolate chip, lemon cream, thin mint, pink wafer cookies tanging with grocery store chemicals. And then out the back door into glorious freedom, into the great, gaping, windy, chilly, breathing day. Sugar surging, we played hide and seek among the gravestones impressed with the names of the long dead. 
out there with the crunchy leaves kicked up and the knife of cold sliding through the holes in the crotch of woolen stockings which had with maddening slowness crawled their way down the thighs during the service toward the knees. I could now be gloriously whipped off and launched into the branches of a tree to dangle dark and limbless there. Now the bare, happy legs at last running among the overgrown grass, the naked feet freed of the patent leather, leather prisons. Because we'd spent two hours considering death, we were almost too tenderly aware of how, below, the bones of the dead felt the footfalls of the living children through six feet of packed dirt. And best of all was the terror and glee of being seized by one of the older boys who grabbed the younger girls by the arm, one leg, and spun them. The blur of the churchyard, the first exquisite hint of a more adult pleasure, la petite mort. In the seizing, the whirl, the trembling collapse, the dizzy aftermath. Is it strange, is it sacrilegious, that I'm drawing a line right now between sex and God? Perhaps it shouldn't be. The first poets were, of course, religious poets, priests and priestesses. Back at the beginning of written history, in ancient Mesopotamia, religious ceremonies often integrated sexu sacred sexuality into the rites and rituals. Scholars have written about how, in ceremony, the priestess in her very person embodied the great goddess Inanna, or Ishtar. The priest or king became her groom, and together they created, in Greek, what is called hieroskamos, or ritual marriage. In fact, the first author known by individual name to history was herself, the human voice of the gods. That's right, a woman? This was, yeah! The first author was a woman. This was Enheduanna, who was a 23rd or century BCE Sumerian priestess of Nana, who was the moon god. And this is the disc of Enheduanna that uh, I think you can find in the Carnegie um, Museum. The name that we know of um, her as in Eduana wasn't her birth name, but it was an official title, which meant N, chief priest or priestess, Hedu, ornament, and Anna of heaven. She wrote 42 extant poems of praise and passion, and frequently in them extolled herself as their author, very meta. She was also a royal. She was the daughter of Sargon the Great, the ruler who was known to have created the first known empire. And he installed her in her position to help create and keep the empire together. Religion is something of a collective human glue. This is true of any religion, whether it is Buddhism or Hinduism or Scientology or even that baffling eruption of mass fantasy Q. In fact, the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, said, religion is the first sense of community. Your sense of community occurs by reason of mutual experience with others. He's also credited with saying something that George Orwell actually said. There might be a lot of cash in starting a religion. <laughs> in any event, one of the ways that the priestess and Hedjuana helped to create and keep the empire together was through her hymns in which she melded attributes of two distinct goddesses, Inanna of the Sumerians and Ishtar of the Akkadians, thus giving the disparate peoples under Sargon's rule a set of common narratives. And we're gonna give you, because it's astonishing, an excerpt from the exaltation of Inanna. Um, this is a very long poem, so this is a very small section of it, but it, it is well worth going and reading. It's 
kind of astonishing what she does in it. Uh, I have spoken of your tempestuous fury. I have heaped up coals in the brazier. I have washed in the sacred basin. I have readied your room in the tavern. May your heart be cooled for me. Suffering bitter pangs, I gave birth to this exaltation for you, my queen. What I told you in the dark of night, may the singer recount at noon. Child of yours, I am a captive. Bride of yours, I am a captive. It is for my sake your anger fumes. Your heart finds no relief. The eminent queen, guardian of the throne room, receives her prayer. The holy heart, even Nana, returns to her. This is translated by Betty de Chang-Biador in Inanna, Lady of Largest Heart, Poems of the Sumerian High Priestess in Hedjuanam. So scholars believe that this is one of the later of her poems, as it relates something that actually happened. At one point, Enheduanna was removed as high priestess by an usurper involved in an uprising, a man named Lugalane. The poem itself relates the priestess's removal, her suffering in exile, and the happy return to her position. As we see here in the excerpt above, there's a sophisticated mix of purposes all taking place at all at once in this prayer poem. The goddess is feared in her tempestuous fury, appealed to personally in terms of the service the priestess has done for her. I have heaped up coals in the brazier, washed in the sacred basin. Loved as both a child of the goddess and, interestingly, a bride of the goddess, shown the priestess's willing subservient, I am a captive, and claims the protection of the goddess, it is for my sake your anger fumes. I am astonished here by the depiction of the poem itself as a result of a kind of sacred verbal pregnancy. And Hedjuana, ripe with the grief of her usurpation, that's a very hard word, begs for vengeance from the goddess and grows gravid with and gives birth to the poem at hand. Something I find fascinating about this poetry, all of the poetry in Hedwana, is how corporeal it is, how it insists upon the animal body as locus and site of godliness. In other religious dogma, the body is the impediment to a clearer understanding and love of the eternal. See, for instance, in Christianity, the idea of the mortification of the flesh, an idea that comes from the book of Romans 8.13, which says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christians have interpreted this through a number of means, including fasting, self-flagellation, self-denial of pleasure, celibacy, even cheerful martyrdom. All right, this is St. Lucy, Santa Lucia. A martyr became a martyr and was a saint through bodily suffering. My favorite is this woman, St. Lucy of Syracuse. She was a third century saint who had secretly consecrated her virginity to God. And this is an early 16th century image by Beccafumi, and you, if you go to Siena, Italy, you can see it there. But St. Lucy's mother had a bleeding disease, which made her worry about her daughter's life, and so the mother betrothed Lucy to a pagan man. When the mother was cured by going to a saint's shrine, in thanks, Lucy gave away much of her family's wealth, which angered her betrothed. He complained to the governor of Syracuse, who ordered the girl to burn a sacrifice in the image of the emperor. Lucy would not, it was against her religion, so he banished her to a brothel in punishment. 
When they came to get her, though, God made her so heavy that not even a team of oxen could move her. And then they ripped out her eyeballs and tried and failed to burn her at the stake, and she was finally killed with a sword through the throat. In the lives of Catholic saints, this sort of extreme bodily submission was a gift to God, and the martyrs were later canonized for it. And what I love most about this image, which is a very, very weird image, is how large the eyeballs are on the plate. Uh, anyway, in the poetry of Enheduanna, though, the body is essential, the locus of the formation of prayer, and sacred praise occurs within the exaltation of the body. A more contemporary poet who thrills to the same bodily slash godly joy as Enheduanna was Jean Valentine, who died only a few years ago in 2020, and this is my very favorite of her poems. This is Jean Valentine right there. Um, she's just a beautiful person. So this is called The River at Wolf. Coming east, we left the animals, pelican, beaver, osprey, muskrat, and snake, their hair and skin and feathers, their eyes in the dark, red and green. Your finger drawing my mouth. Blessed are they who, thou, who remember that what they now have they once longed for. A day, a year ago, last summer, God filled me with himself like gold inside, deeper inside than marrow. This close to God, this close to you. Walking into the river at wolf with the animals. The snake's green skin lit from inside. Our second life. God, so good. There's so much here, right? There's the deeply erotic linking of the body and God, the way this poem is a poem of envelopes. The snake's green skin lit from inside is paralleled by the way the speaker is filled with God, like gold inside, deeper inside than marrow. And there's a third, further parallel of envelopes in the implication that the you whose finger that drew the mouth of the I whose mouth is speaking were engaged in the intimacy of sex, that the speaker is the woman to be filled by the lover. How all of this I leads to a kind of resurrection at the end. Through this moment comes the lover's second life, just like the snake skin left behind shows the snakes in its new skin, in its new second life. This is a celebration of all the animals invoked, a likening of those two lovers to the animals, and walking into the river with the other animals, feeling the joy of their animal bodies is the occasion for being filled with God. In an interview, Jean Valentine said the italicized, blessed are they who remember that what they now have, they once longed for, was something that she saw pinned up on a bulletin board. It's from no gospel or book of Psalms, but a radiant exhalation out of gritty, ordinary life. This poem is a hymn of praise. And I can't resist showing you another Jean Valentine poem, which modulates the hymn of praise into a plea and a lament. This one's called, I Came to You. I came to you, Lord, because of the reticence of this world. No, not the world, not reticence. Oh, Lord, come. Lord, come. We were sad on the ground. Lord, come. We were sad on the ground. How great.
great is that angry first instance of reticence italicized here. It comes so clear that the eager speaker is trying desperately to meet the world, and with every step she makes the world is withdrawing from her. Then comes the inversion, the equally angry repudiation of the world's word and reticence. No, these are incorrect. They are far too inexact. The speaker, so frustrated with the clumsy withholding of the world's speech, is encountering her own lack of eloquence, her own frustrating inexactitude. Then comes the apostrophe, which in a piece of literature, when someone is spoken to directly, it's called an apostrophe. Um, and the apostrophe is toward God. In helplessness, the speaker can only plead with the Lord in the end, pleading, pleading for help in terms that are inelegant and nearly childish, but blunt and effective still. Speech like we were sad on the ground. The speaker at first came to the Lord, but finding relief so distant, she pleads with the Lord to come closer, to come to her. This repetition of Lord, come, we were sad on the ground, how it sings a little bit, like the music of my childhood church choir. One of those hymns that reverts itself back to the chorus like the Christmas songs, Oh Come Let Us Behold Him, or Sleep in Heavenly Peace. This poem demonstrates another aspect of the human relationship to God or the eternal, the angry relationship, the despairing relationship. Think of Job from the Old Testament, whom God in testing had stripped of all his worldly loves and goods and even his health. Job laments his losses in sorrow and anger, but refuses to curse God for them until, quite wonderfully, God, as embodied in the Old Testament vision of him, emerges from a whirlwind to actually speak to the crushed man, to deliver the relief of words and restitution to him. Literature in the form of lament is as powerful as literature in the form of ecstatic praise. Among all the devout or godly poets of history, I have a special place in my heart for one in particular, Gerard Manley Hopkins, here he is, so handsome, who played so gorgeously with both praise and lament, and whose poem, Carry and Comfort, has often been my own friend and lifeline during my long, dark, insomniac nights of despair. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a tormented soul from the middle of the 19th century, a gifted British poet who turned away from poetry when he was young for a while, saying, on this day, by God's grace, I resolved to give up all beauty until I had his leave for it. He converted to Catholicism and became a Jesuit priest and teacher of Greek and was sickly and melancholy for most of his rather short and tormented life. But he took up poetry again, to the world's great benefit, because his ex experiments were radical, full of gorgeous, tumbling, strange neologisms and soundscapes within meaning. His new and ecstatic play with language forefigures a lot of the poetry of the 20th and 21st century. For instance, I often think of this line uh, in which Hopkins describes boys swimming in a river. <clears throat> the boys with dare and with down dolphinry and bell-bright bodies huddling out our earth world, air world, water world, thorough hurled, all by turn and turn about. It's just such a shout of praise, right? It's a shout of praise. This poem is a shout of despair. All right, this one's called Carrying Comfort, and this is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Not 
I'll not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something, hope, wish day come, not choose not to be. But ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me? Thy ring-world right-foot rock lay a lion limb against me, scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones, and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? That my chaff might fly, my grain lies sheer and clear. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kissed the rod, hand rather, my heart low-lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me, or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? That night... That year of now done darkness I wretch lay wrestling with. My God, my God, my God. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Carrying Comfort is one of Hopkins's so called terrible sonnets. Terrible, not because of their quality, because they're in fact all excellent, but because they reach toward what a friend of Hopkins's called the terrible crystal, the awesome, roiling, too vast firmament spoken of in the Exodus of the Old Testament. And there saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and it, as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. One aspect of an encounter with God or the eternal is the inability to ever vanquish doubt, to come to a kind of peace of unknowing. Within the poem here, Hopkins replicates his nights of wrestling with his God, that long, difficult, multiply questioning single sentence in the first stanza, the one that goes, but ah, but oh thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring-world right-foot rock, lay a lion limb against me, scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones, and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me, heap there, me frantic to avoid thee, and flee. This long sentence does exactly to the reader what it describes. It crashes down on the reader's head and rolls them around, panicking, underwater, claws after claws, crushing the reader with almost overwhelming vitality and force, thereby putting the reader dead into the middle of the experience of tasting in person the speaker's own racked and violent despair. And then, in miniature, it brings the reader to where the speaker ends up, at last out of the long night. After the long year of despair, cast up on the beach, panting in now done darkness, the poem coming to an end, the wrestling match safely in the past. I think this is a remarkable feat. It's a microcosm of the despair that he felt. It's incredible. The glorious thing about literature is that one does not have to be a Jesuit or a prophet or a believer in any established church or system or belief or dogma to reflect the radiance of the eternal in praise or to encapsulate the thunder of despair and lament. That said, it is possibly 
easier for the believer in established forms of worship to write into the great mysteries because they have been handed a rich set of understood symbols and connections and narratives with which to draw. They aren't being asked to create meaning from scratch. Walt Whitman, while he never ascribed to any specific religion, did consider himself a prophet and his leaves of grass were his psalms. Because he grew up in the religiously heterogeneous Christian world of 19th century America, he was able to draw on Christian shorthand in his own work, to use a language of inference that would have been immediately understandable to nearly every one of his contemporary readers, whether they were themselves believers or not. For instance, when in the beginning of his grand poem, Song of Myself, Whitman says, my tongue every atom of my blood formed from this soil, this air. He is referencing Genesis when, and here in the King James Version, it goes, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. I think if one is a writer or a true reader or an admirer of any art of the past in this fragmented and diffuse 21st century of ours, one has to grapple with this precise subtext that appears threaded through the history of art. Codified religion, even if one does not believe in any of its dictates, is still a glorious language sublanguage in which one's fluency is vastly rewarded. If you walk through any museum in the world, you will see art that draws on the stories underneath the primary story, the primary story being the thing that you are in fact looking at. Take, for instance, this image. All right. This is a painting that you can find in the Futsi Gallery. If you don't know the religious language sublanguage here, you would see a murder mystery, a miniature crime novel, two women holding down a man in the nighttime and cutting his throat. Step toward the placard, and you'd see the name of the painter, which is Artemisia Gentileschi, and it was from circa 1620. Aha! The painter was a woman, you, the viewer, might think. Now there's a hint of the biographical story here, how to be a woman painter at a time when there were practically no other woman painters, how the assertion of one's right to one's art at such a time would have been so challenging, so frustrating, that the choice of this scene, women beheading a man, would have a new subtext. This is a feminist painting, you might think. And yet, it is. If one knows the religious story that was in fact being painted about here, um, you would know a far fuller layer of a story here. It's the story of Judith and Holofernes from the Bible, which Gentileschi is illustrating. And the story goes like this. The people of Israel were being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army, so a very young woman, Judith, goes to the enemy encampment to the tent of the ferocious general Holofernes. The general, seeing a gorgeous and well-dressed woman suddenly showing up in his encampment, apparently intent on seducing him, gives her a lavish feast, and the text says, Holofernes was so enchanted with her that he drank far more wine than he had drunk on any other day in his life, and passed out, and she and her maidservant held him down and cut off his head, thus freeing her people from his tyranny. All right, this is an, this is an aside. Hold on one second. All right. But Gentileschi's father was a close friend of the painter Caravaggio, which also, who also very famously painted this scene. Caravaggio's is on the right, and Gentileschi's is on the left here. But look at Caravaggio's in comparison 
to gentlest keys. How delicate his Judith is in comparison. How distasteful she seems to find what she's doing. How improbable it is that such a pale, slight young maiden as his Judith could hold down such a muscular snack like his Holofernes to murder him. Like, look at her, she's so tender. Although I adore most of Caravaggio's work, I personally find the Gentileschi much more raw and truthful here. There's so much fury and icy determination and muscular work and blood plausibly spurting here in comparison to the weird, gentle ribbons of blood in the Caravaggio. <laughs> Whenever I walk through a museum or read poetry, I am grateful that I have been given this language sublanguage of religious narrative. Even though as the extremely pious child I had been grew older, I grew away from the beliefs that were handed to me by my Presbyterian upbringing. I slowly stopped my fervent consumption of the Bible during the three-hour church services, or the long, strange, white nights in my room when to stave off the ghosts that poured in coldly and insistently when the lights went off, I read the delicate papered Bible I received for confirmation, which lived on my nightstand and kept the spirit world at bay. I grew fervently interested in other narratives, stranger narratives, the stories and the books I began gulping down as fast as I could find them. These were the years before young adult literature burst into full bloom, and there were some books like The Bridge of Terabithia or My Side of the Mountain or Hatchet or The Outsiders that might have been called YA at the time, but I didn't know enough about books to seek out the ones that were ostensibly written for people my age. So I read everything, every single thing I could find. At nine years old, I read the silverfish, brittle, full collection of Jane Austen that I bought for a dollar at the yearly library sale. And I didn't know that they were meant for adults because they were so clearly meant for me. I also bought a nearly complete collection of Nancy Drews and Hardy Boys, an Edith Hamilton book on mythology, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, which made me talk like a southerner for like a good six months. A little older, I found my mother's book from her English literature courses in college, Middlemarch, and Jude the Obscure, and Robert Browning, who taught me erroneously that poetry had to have extreme end rhyming to be poetry, and launched me into years of rhyming tooth with forsooth, or a fawn with anon. I discovered Oliver Twist in the Scholastic School book sale and bought it out of probably Presbyterian parsimony. It was the thickest book on the shelf, and I liked the price per page being so very low. I read my parents' Book of the Month books, which included John Updike's Rabbit books and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And because of the Book of the Month Club, I also read Jean M. Ale Far Too Young, and my understanding of sexuality was for a long time whacked out in the direction of the Australopithecus. <laughs> the book that made me into a writer was the one that my best friend, Lisa Sensession, gave me on my 12th birthday. It was a collection of the poems of Emily Dickinson. Suddenly I found full force in literature what I had sensed or seen in so many other books of literature in possibly smaller measure. A sense of enigma, of play, of the grand and graspable mysteries, of bodily ecstasy. But here it was in poem after poem, and it inspired me to sit down to write my own absolutely terrible imitations of Dickinson's work. Of course, this feeling, brushing up against true art in the form of Emily Dickinson's poetry, was what I had experienced for so many years in religion. 
Our culture often pits art and religion as opposites, perhaps because we've let small-minded people dictate what religion is supposed to look like. Pleasure is suspect to such people, and art is one of our grandest pleasures, available to humans. This art to them is suspect. All you grave town fathers just let Kevin Bacon dance. Of course, these small-minded people are not truly religious. True religion is not the seeking of power over the actions and the bodies of strangers. True, truly religious people would never force a woman to bear an unwanted embryo to term. People who... <laughs> people who try to limit other people's lives, bodies, and actions are in fact working for the other side, for smallness and pettiness for the powers of darkness. Because true religious feeling is about greatness and wonder, the expansion outward toward the eternal, for the communion of soul between people and the sharing of this awe and greatness and wonder and love. What I'm about to say would certainly be blasphemous to people who try to limit religion to the punitive, to the acquisition of their own power over others. But my belief is that even secular art is an extension of religious feeling. Any gesture of praise or lament, any ambivalent admixtures of praise and lament, any reaching out of the animal human toward the unknowable eternal comes from the same flickering flame inside as does profound religious feeling. This goes for the maker of art as well as for the audience of the art. Not every day that one sits down to write will one find the hot and radiant thread and follow it as far as it allows you to go. Not every piece of music that one listens to is going to stir feelings of awe in one. But the same principle is applied here. If one sits day after day in the active pursuit of art, one will certainly at one point find that radiant thread. If one listens to enough music or walks through enough museums, that hot and radiant thread will suddenly touch one and fill one's body with fire. Art, like the grand eternal mysteries, like God, sits outside of the individual who is making or experiencing it. Art, like God, can live on long past the death of its maker or its appreciator. I'm going to give the last words of one of my favorite poets of all times, Czesław Milos, whose poem says everything that I said over the last 43 minutes, but because he's a poet, he says them in 17 lines, and here it is. This is And Yet the Books, and it's by Czesław Milos, translated by himself and Robert Haas, um, the, the late Robert Haas. And yet the books will be there on the shelves, separate beings that appeared once still wet as shining chestnuts under a tree in autumn, and touched, coddled, began to live in spite of fires on the horizon, castles blown up, tribes on the march, planets in motion. We are, they said, even as their pages were being torn out, even or a buzzing flame licked away their letters. So much more durable than we are whose frail warmth cools down with memory, disperses, perishes. I imagine the earth when I am no more. Nothing happens, no loss. It's still a strange pageant, women's dresses, dewy lilacs, a song in the valley. Yet the books will be there on the shelves, well-born, derived from people, but also radiance, heights. 
Thank you. Indeed. Wow. <laughs> what a beautiful finish. We're waiting for some questions to come up, so look for the um, usher who has their hands in the air, um, and we'll take your cards, and we'll get to as many of those questions as we can. Some of these came in by email before the event. Um, this one, this person wants to know, did the corner that held them influence Matrix? This is funny. So Sylvia Townsend Warner wrote a book about nuns, medieval nuns, called The Corner That Held Them. And I actually didn't read it until most of the way through editing. So it didn't influence me at all in any way, except for the fact that I was like, oh no, wait, someone else had a, like a medieval nun story. Um, but it's, it's, so, it's such a wacky book. It's so delightful, and it's so messy, and it's such, like, it's just a wacky book. She's an amazing writer. Um, her other book that I know is called Lolly Willows, and it's, it's, it's bonkers. Um, it's, uh, it's about witches. And uh, basically, I think it's a woman going through either perimenopause or actual menopause, and like she becomes a witch over the course of it. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. Uh, she's, a, she's a fascinating writer. Like a good witch. <laughs> good save. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, but like it's literally about witchcraft. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's very good. Um, this person seems to have inside information, so we'll see if it's true. Okay. Can you tell us anything about your new 17th century American wilderness novel? I can. I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to anyway. Um, yeah. Crazy <laughs> what jet lag will do for secrets. <laughs> I think. My publicist is like, don't tell anyone about it, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, it's coming on the fall, so like they, I don't know why they're not working on it. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's set in 1609. So when the English came to Jamestown in 1609, there was a winter that was incredibly hard. It was brutal. They called it the starving time because people starved to death. Um, and they, they died of many other diseases. Malaria, yaws, I think. I don't know what that is, but something like that. Um, different kind of bubo-type diseases. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, probably syphilis, who knows. Um, but, like, people were dying left and right, and um, I was really interested in that time, and I was really interested in, I love Robinson Crusoe so desperately. I think it's one of the great, great novels. Um, and um, I wanted to write a female Robinson Crusoe, and I was also interested in early American captivity narratives, which are these bonkers. Um, so in early America, um, women or the men around them um, wrote these narratives that were captivity narratives. They're super crazy racist, and um, they, were, they were made in order to sort of spread the narrative that um, uh, Europeans should come to the North America to sort of conquer it. Um, but they're kind of wonderful, too, at the same time that they're absolutely egregiously awful. And um, there's some, like, the, the narrative of Mary Rawlinson, where you can actually sense the actual woman beneath the narrative and the, the suffering, and, and you, can, you can sort of feel this person there. So I was really interested in all these things altogether, and I wanted to sort of right into the captivity narrative genre and sort of explore backwards without um, necessarily um, you know, making a racist text, I hope. Um, 
and, and sort of play around with these ideas. And so it's, a, it's about um, a, a girl who escapes from Jamestown um, and it survives in the wilderness. I also love survival stories. I love, um, I don't know, Naked and Afraid. It's so good. Right? Like, <laughs> it's incredible because you watch these people who are naked and afraid <laughs> for like, a full three weeks. Like, and you can see their bodies slowly diminishing as they're shivering all night long. And you think, man, I would never do that. <laughs> Not intentionally. <laughs> right. So. right. Here's a process question um, Is it a quote unquote polishing your prose something you? are able to postpone until the rewrite phase, or does it distract you even in the first draft? No, so, so okay, okay. Set aside your judgment, please. Um, and I'm about to tell you something that will make you want to kill me. Um, but I, I actually write in lots of very fast drafts, everything longhand. So um, I'll write a short story, I'll give myself a certain amount of time, maybe a week, to write a fast draft. I don't reread anything that I write, so I actually don't stop and, and play with the prose. But I am always listening for the music, right? I'm trying to find the music of the story that I'm trying to do it. And then I'll put it to the side when I'm done with that, without looking at it, start over again put it to the side, start over again, right? So it seems like it's a lot of wasted effort and frustration, but I'm actually never going back and rereading the thing that I, I did. Ever? Ever, I, no. I mean, why would I want to read like someone's awful work? I would, no, I mean, I want to read good work, right? Um, so, but what happens when I do this is it's sort of like a forest fire comes through, burns away all the, the awful like ground, like, I don't know, there's a metaphor there that I'm losing. Um, the the, the, the uh, weeds, and it, it leaves the large oak trees, and those are the things that I write toward the next one. So uh, I really genuinely do not worry about language in any way other than the fact that I'm, um, I'm listening for the sentences that seem to have a kind of musical resonance with the ideas that I'm writing about. Or, um, sort of act as somewhat fractals toward the larger story, right? The, the smaller version of the larger story. And when I find those, I think those are the things that, that stay from one draft to the next, right? Those are the things that are alive and that, that live through the drafting process. And genuinely, when I have a draft, when I have all the characters, I have lives off the page, right? I have the, the architecture of the thing at hand, so much so that I can actually sort of three-dimensionally put it in the sky, spin it around, see from all angles. That's when I pay attention to the language. Um, because otherwise my OCD gets in the way, I can't actually finish even a sentence or a paragraph. But when I have everything that I need, I can write, and I have the music of the sentences, I can write with some, some fluency, which means like not quickly, but, but I, I can feel the truth of what it is that I'm trying to do. Yeah. Thank you very much again for being here with us. Thank you all for being here. All right, thank you, Andrew. That was Lauren Groff from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in January 2023. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. 
Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.